Welcome to Growing Pains, a podcast for medical students by medical students. My name is Sarah Barnard. I'm an MD3 at Deakin University. And join us as we talk to fellow students and medical professionals about the challenges we may face navigating our personal and professional lives as future medics. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Growing Pains podcast. We're excited to introduce Dr. Ajit Singh this month to talk to us about managing your mental health as a medical student. Associate Professor Ajit Singh is an academic private psychiatrist in Geelong with interest in complex mood disorders, pharmacogenetics, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. He has a mission to improve lives with tailored psychiatric care. Dr. Singh specializes in high-functioning breakdowns in people with demanding careers like medicine and law, and so we were really excited to sit down with him to chat about mental health among medical students and medicos. In this episode, Dr. Singh, or AJ as he likes to be called, offers a nuanced perspective on how we can effectively manage our mental health as high-functioning, high-achievers. He does this in a way that acknowledges that struggle and difficulty are necessary ingredients for growth, and that finding the balance between this and maintaining your mental health isn't always easy or simple. I found this to be a really refreshing talk and I hope you enjoy. So thank you so much for coming on the show, AJ. We really appreciate it. No worries. So I wanted to get started um, just with some definitions, um, particularly around mental health. I know that this terminology gets thrown around in the media quite a lot, um, talking about mental health versus mental illness, mental health conditions. Um, Are you able to clarify for us some of the distinctions between mental health um, and, say, having a mental health condition or illness? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's um, distress and dysfunction are the the keys. So it's really a uh, functional impairment and qualitative distress units, like, you know, SCUDs. Um, And the difference between sort of mental well-being and mental illness would be impairment and handicap. So, for example, you're stressed about your exam, you have an adjustment reaction with anxious mood, you study harder, um, and you do better because of the anxiety. So we'd say that's adaptive anxiety with improved performance, mm-hmm. and that sort of Yerkes-Dodson performance anxiety curve, a bit of adrenaline helps, too much harms. So most of the, the behavioural circuits in the brain are finding sweet spots for niche picking and probably also evolutionary design for group survival. Even something like bipolar, you could say that was the original quarantine. Every few months they were depressed, didn't socialise, stayed in the cave, didn't get COVID. Mm. Then a few months later they come out and repopulate the tribe. So they're frisky. Right. You know? So yeah. it's sort of so there's a whole yeah. lot of things which we conceive as pathology, but depends on the, the context. But usually be like say mood, most people feel sad, but where it becomes so persistent and severe that it's unusual and disrupts your functionality mm. um, and potentially can bring in morbid um, thoughts and and behaviour. Um, a simple example would be, say, alcohol. Most people say if you graduate, you want a glass of champagne or something. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean you have a drinking problem? No, it's sort of the impacts. So pretty much everything in, in mental health psychiatry, it's distress and dysfunction. And mm-hmm. dysfunction is in a social context. So a paranoid schizophrenic might not be distressed, um, but they become dysfunctional if they're talking to invisible people in the middle of the road sort of thing. Or mm. this is... Um, so that would be a broad way. And every DSM category has got distress dysfunction. So if you're ever in an exam, you can always say, well, look, this may be subclinical because there's no distress or dysfunction in the social context and you'll get an extra point. Yeah, okay, good tip. So why do you think um, 
this distinction is important when we talk about, say, colloquially, talk about mental health? Yeah, so I think it's sort of, it's a bit like, you know, muscle burn versus muscle rip. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if my personal trainer's telling me to run up the hill and I think I'm having a heart attack, but he says, no, you're getting fit, then I then I, mm-hmm. I keep going. And similarly with re- resilience, so a lot of talk about you've got to, you know, toughen up but not break yourself. You've got to sort of push your limits but respect your limits. So a degree of, of emotional pain and distress is part of development, like developing stamina as a doctor. Um, we're not superhuman, but we're meant to develop stamina so we can help more people without burning out. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the dilemmas, you know, with, with medical students is you want to shelter them and not break them. But then also you've got to get the match ready so they can, you know, jog 5K without passing out. And mm-hmm. um, this is one of the dilemmas. So that's sort of resilience type stuff. Yeah, okay. And so that would be more in the healthy range of emotional strain mm. rather than pathologic where there's breakdown, dysfunction, disruption. Mm. Okay. So using that sort of analogy, it seems like perhaps we haven't got the balance quite right with healthcare workers and medical students given the high rates of um, depression and anxiety and suicide in the medical community. Um, so there is quite a bit of evidence about this and I wanted to, I've written some some notes down here from some papers that I wanted to share with our audience um, and I wanted to hear some of your thoughts on what might explain some of these statistics. Um, and I'm also not sure if, if medical students are fully aware of just how high these rates are. Um, but there was a very large meta-analysis done on 195 studies across 47 countries um, by the AMA. of medical students report depression or depressive symptoms and 11% um, have endorsed suicide ideation. And this is about two to five times higher than the general population. In Australia specifically, um, Beyond Blue did some studies and reported that 40-50% of medical practitioners experience emotional exhaustion and symptoms of depression and anxiety. And about one in five reported suicide thoughts over the previous year. In general, um, suicide rates are much higher in medical practitioners and medical trainees in the general population. And for females, this is over twice as high than the general population. So these are pretty remarkable statistics um, for our healthcare community. What do you think explains some of these results? Yeah, it's amazing how we overcomplicate things. Stress. Mm. So high stress, low control equals misery. Yeah. If it's chronic. Yeah. So chronic high stress, low control. So you think how long you have to study before you can shape your schedule. Mm. See, I can shape my schedule, um, but it took a long time. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas when you're in the pipeline, it's like, oh, yeah, maybe in 15 years I can shape my schedule and choose more what I do. So there's limited control, which can give a sense of learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. So one of the, you're living through genuinely historic times, sociologically as well. Um, so one way of explain, understanding everything, the economy, climate change, war, is sociologically mm-hmm. mass behaviour. So there's a phenomenon now of the great resignation. People aren't working as hard after all the lockdowns because they're discovering they were happier with less stress. Yeah. <laughs> it's not good for economic productivity, which is necessary for a large standing military. Right. Sad, mm. Sadly, sociocultural evolution is might is right, even when it's wrong. Mm. But there's all these, you know, so these sociological factors are very huge. And so, for example, so hardworking medicos, 
lots of stress just in the nature of the job, the long hours, career uncertainty with exam failure rates high as you specialise and go into any, any area. Mm. Um, so, so I think that combination, then female will be higher because the women are uh, uniquely different to men, and not, in a, not in a bad way. They make life. So that creates people who decide to juggle family and career an extra layer of stress, even though you can co-parent, you can't co-gestate, you can't co-breastfeed, you know. So there's an extra dimension of stress, mm. and I think um, that's an element of it. I think for men, some of it's masked in antisocial behaviour, so like family violence or alcohol or both, mm-hmm. um, whereas the default pattern tends to be there's more internalisation of pain, which can be depression as opposed to taking it out at the bottle shop or on people verbally or physically. Mm. Um, and so, it, so I, yes. And then the analogy would be look at the air traffic controllers have quite high rates of burnout and then all the subsequent impacts, including, you know, suicide. And so health healthcare is similar with the extra dimension of access. So if you're an anaesthetist, for example, you know how to beautifully self-euthanase, mm. um, you know, and so there's a greater access to to sort of means. But there's a real change. You're coming in at a stage where, so my practice, I mainly do high-functioning breakdowns. Mm-hmm. So lots of doctors, lawyers, professors, all sorts of people, and there's less shame in getting help. It's more a badge of honour that I've got issues and I'm tackling them. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes from the last, you know, one or two decades of positive role models you know, the AFL stars, the professors saying, look, I've got help and it's not to be ashamed of. Mm. Um, whereas 20, 20, 30 years ago, it was dishonourable um, and shameful to not be mentally Superman or Superwoman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that culture's changed. Yeah, particularly with a lot of um, awareness within medical school about mental health strain. Um, hopefully in about 10 years' time when we're all doctors that we'll be practising what we preach as well. Do you think there are some intrinsic factors in people who pursue a career in, say, medicine or law, these kind of high-functioning, high-stress jobs that might make them more vulnerable to mental health issues? Yeah, and I think that's a, a great question. So there's a few elements. So one of the few risk factors, for example, for bipolar is a high IQ. Mm, so, so some people, they'll just, you know, cram the night before and ace every exam and sort of stuff. So so some, so some there's an over-representation in high IQ of uh, bipolar spectrum and sometimes that doesn't present clearly till your 20s and 30s or, you know, mm. to be your late 20s. Um, there's the perfectionistic um, student who could master every topic in high school but it's impossible in medicines. It's mm. ocean deep. So that if they're um, unable to adapt to that, that can create stress, maladjustment. There's also, um, you know, there's increasing push to try and get people who are sort of personality balanced. Um, the cliche sort of narcissistic surgeon. Um, <laughs> but then the narcissistic traits can be adaptive. So if you're a narcissistic Pediatric heart surgeon, your hands don't shake because the child's got the best surgeon in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're a highly empathic pediatric heart surgeon, you might sweat a bit when you're operating on a baby. So, again, mm. it's sort of niche picking, and that usually the risk is the people around them 
can burn out if there's a lack of empathy um, um, style. And then there's high-functioning Asperger's. Mm-hmm. So I just call them the super human, human supercomputers. <laughs> so they make you know, disproportionately good engineers, radiologists, pathologists, sort of a lack of facial animation, um, somewhat stilted movement, but kind of nice people and machine-like knowledge. Um, and so they can have social isolation can be a harder sort of thing for them to have a, mm. a social group because there's an awkwardness with that. So there are a few little um, elements that can predispose, but probably the biggest element is, is the high-stress nature of the the work and the lack of control. Like mm-hmm. there's not many careers where you're still not sure what you're going to be when you're 30. Yeah. You yeah. know, m- most other careers you're, you're more or less home and hosed. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think the preponderance is more the stress and lack of control on initial career development. But then, yes, there is a, a selecting population. So, for example, if your self-esteem is based on being top of your class and then you go to medical school and it's actually harder to be top of the class, it doesn't mean you're bad. It's just it's just you go from the, you know, B League to the A League and it's, it's harder. Then if you've got a brittle self-worth, conditional self-approval, where it's not operationalised on your best effort, but more being the best, then there can be maladjustment there. Mm-hmm. So so there are there are some specific factors with, with high achievers. Yeah. Okay. So in say someone who in the absence of a diagnosable mental health condition, and with a disclaimer that we don't want to put too much emphasis on the individual person that they're entirely responsible for their mental health when we are working in a high-pressure environment. Um, what are some things that you know are um, effective tools for managing your mental health when you're in a you know a high-demand, um, high-stress job like medicine or law? So, I mean, I think, I mean, there's all the, the, the common-sense stuff like, you know, diet, exercise, positive think style. But I think... Um, you know, those tips around sleep, alcohol, and a social routine, because they all, I think, are antecedents of being at risk of going off the deep end. So -hmm. often we'll talk about at-risk mental state. So like, you know, somebody developing schizophrenia or not, maybe, maybe not, we will say at-risk mental state. just means you monitor and support them more. So if you've got the self-awareness that you notice your own pre-burnout signs, and you can self-analyse that you have an at-risk mental state, major burnout in the mm-hmm. minor burnout stage. That helps you navigate better than the average doctor. So many of the most effective, content and, and uh, successful doctors are ones who are good at managing their own burnout. Mm. It's not just their level of stamina. Right. Some of it's can they manage their own, own burnout. So I think that's sort of self-monitoring. Mm-hmm. For science that you're losing your equilibrium. Okay. Um, and I think that that's actually the most strategic approach. So it sounds like um, understanding yourself is really important and understanding the signs that you're not, not coping as well as you usually do is really important to sort of make changes or recognise that you need to make changes. Generally speaking, are there trends in what constitutes burnout for a lot of people? Yes, so... Um, no pleasure is a good sign. Mm. So like most of us would enjoy learning and enjoy mastery and enjoy helping people. When that's just bland, it's a bad sign. Mm. Like if it's just the thrill is gone, the joy is gone, 
and you just become this miserable robot doer. Um, it, not just a bad day, but a bad week and a month. Mm. That's a bad sign. Um, it's yeah. almost pathognomonic of not good stuff happening. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, whereas if you're still tired, but you're still enjoying learning and helping, I mean, the ultimate anti burnout is fulfillment from work. Mm. So, you know, even medical ethics do no harm. So, if you're so burnt out, you're a horrible person to deal with. You kind of harm every patient you interact with with your manner, yeah. particularly yeah. in you know, my job, but in general. Um, and so, when you start to lose that enjoyment, um, it, it, everything backfires. It's a lose-lose. The care mm. quality drops. Your enjoyment of things drops. The challenge becomes, is there work flexibility to, to do something? And probably the flexibility is only there early on. If it's quite advanced, you might need a month off or three months off. Then that becomes significantly problematic to implement mm -hmm. uh, and creates its own stress if it leads to career development disruptions or the guilt, the moral injury of letting people down. Mm. Um, and so then people can be locked in and then go sort of on a death march of deterioration. So that's yeah. why that early intervention is really important to your own burnout. Mm -hmm. So where you can say, look, I just need a, a Friday sickie mm -hmm. and, you know, to go to the day spa or something or just jump on a plane to Sydney or somewhere mm. where those little things will might turn it around. Yeah. Um, so I think that early intervention self-monitoring. Mm. How um, realistic do you think it is for young doctors or like early career doctors to, to do those kind of um, things for themselves, like take time off? Because particularly early in your career, like you were saying, there's very little autonomy over your schedule. You Often your schedules are done in entire rotation in, in advance. Um what yeah how realistic do you think that that is for for doctors and do you think they should start setting examples themselves yeah so your life is more important than your career mm. and it won't be for everybody so it's a huge investment but even just your basic credentialing is a career badge in your cv for multiple career paths but it's a relatively specific career path skill set mm. but again that perspective you know my career is a big part of my life i've invested a lot but my life is bigger than it. Mm -hmm. Very important to have that mindset before you hit the wards um, as, as the, the DR. Mm -hmm. um, and because then you are less likely to lose perspective. Mm. I'm failing at my career, I must end my life sort of thinking. Yeah. Which is demented sort of thinking. It is. I, you can sort of see how it gets to that though particularly if you're working long hours and you don't have access to your family your friends or you're doing a rural rotation and you're socially isolated um so if you're locked in but you're going look i have to just get through this year but next year i'm going to do job share mm. or or have a pause or something um if you're in a really bad way and things are spiraling you might have to hit the kill switch of just going to hr and explaining and they'll protect and support you mm. Um, but you might, most people would say, look, I'm struggling next year. I'm not going to do this again. I'll, I'll rebalance. Yeah. Um, and it might mean your training takes longer, but you don't hate your life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so or your job. Yeah. 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 And so being honest with yourself is difficult. But if you don't burn out, you're not trying hard enough. So you won't <laughs> hear that from many people, right? Okay. So like, Can you like, elaborate? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's push your limits, respect your limits. Yeah. So I've developed my limits by burning out. It's like the jogger who pushes themselves too far and gets a stitch. 
mm-hmm. the next time they can run that extra kilometer mm-hmm. and and navigating that so it's like say an elite athlete pushing themselves just below the injury line yeah so it's muscle burn not muscle rip okay if you get good at yeah. that, then you become all you can be and all that kind of you stuff. You reach your potential, yeah. And it's like exhilarating. It's just like, oh, I'm surfing the wave of my capacity. Yeah. And so nice that, that's, I, like I that. find that a better way of putting it than resilience, which is a bit overused. It's like, yeah. I'm surfing the wave of my capacity. Yeah. <laughs> so you still want to push yourself to the point where you, you can get it, you can see in the horizon where your upper limit might be, where if you keep, you know, where um, if you push it further, it might topple over but you want to be able to at least see that horizon at some point so you know is that yeah am i yeah, understanding so, you correctly so it's it's like a higher level skill mm-hmm. so this is my practice i'm in you know private psychiatrist so it's high functioning breakdown so it's high functioning people mm-hmm. and, it, and and it's interesting they they have different challenges and needs high functioning people will not be fulfilled unless they're achieving mm-hmm. it's part and parcel of being high functioning but you can be a pathological achiever and you know harm yourself and others, or you can be a non-pathological achiever. And I think a lot of that's actually pushing yourself to muscle burn, not muscle rip. Mm. And it takes a lot of experience to get good at it, like you know, many years. Mm. Like you're not meant to be good at it in your twenties, for example. Mm-hmm. You're still learning. People who are good at it continuously develop right through their career. They're the sort of you know. Uh, you know, 50-plus-year-old doctor who's still like an excited child. Yeah. And that's yeah. what you want to be. Mm. So so, it's sort of, so I think that's one of the hacks of doing it okay. is that, you know, is pushing to get muscle burn but not muscle rip mm. and learning to, you know, push your limits, respect them, which means judgment to gauge when you're going off the deep end. Mm. Sometimes you will, but then you, you learn from, from that. So like when I finished... Fellowship, I went through three phases. Phase one was maximal workload mm-hmm. till I burnt out. Phase two was maximal sustainable workload till I didn't enjoy my life. Phase three, maximum sustainable, enjoyable workload. And I stayed in that mode ever since. Yeah. And I'm happy. Amazing. Yeah. I've never heard it phrased like that before. That's That's really helpful. Yeah. Because I know personally I just go 110% or I just want to have a nap, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And that, that all or nothing sort of sprint or rest. But mm. then you can work it. So you do, you know, high-intensity intermittent training mm. of your personal development. You know, you kind of yeah. you push it and then regroup and you'll, you'll develop your own recipe. Yeah. So, like, the generic advice is specifically useful to nobody. Yeah, because <laughs> it's all yeah. purpose, and so and, and often it can just seem rubbish and wishy washy. Yeah. The art, the skill, is how you map it to you, where it really makes a difference mm. to, to feeling and functioning good. So the opposite of mental illness, which is mm. feeling and functioning bad, mental health is feeling and functioning good. Yeah, yeah, and particularly being tuned into the things that make you excited or that you get um, invigorated by in your work. And moving more towards that as your career moves forward, I, I would imagine that would be very nourishing as well for your career and your mental health. Yeah, very much so. I mean, a lot of it is um, if you're keeping, if you if your source of anti burnout is your work and your approach to it, you, you're good to go. Mm. Um, you can just self perpetuate. Mm, interesting. 
Um, moving on to a slightly more specific question for medical students, um, there's this theme that comes a lot up a lot with medical students is this enduring four years, particularly when you're in your clinical years, the last two years, um, of not really knowing where you belong in the health system, always sort of feeling like a burden, um, always feeling like you're in the way and you're annoying senior staff. Um, whether that's true or not, it's, we don't know. Sometimes it is true and sometimes it's just a perception um, do you have any advice for medical students who are in that environment quite a lot um, who might be starting to internalise those feelings? Yeah, that's no, good and it's difficult because when you're new, you're meant to be inept. Mm. <laughs> and so, like, and when you're a senior, you can do stuff so fast. Yeah. Um, and the whole system will be chronically probably burdened now, now that we've got a a new version of influenza that's not going away. So we've got endemic COVID. So the whole thing will be stretched maybe ongoing um, and then cumulative long COVID as well. So it's sort of pre-processing that. The, so we, we prefer convenient facts, but reality doesn't care how we feel about it. Mm. So the unpleasant fact is when you're inexperienced and relatively inept, aka a learner, you are a bit of a nuisance. Yeah, yeah. But you're also the future of the whole healthcare system. Mm. And so that's the truth. Mm. And so the dilemma is, oh, we just get rid of all the students and just be more efficient as consultants. But how are we going to retire? <laughs> I should say so, that to the consultant next time that if anyone yeah, treats me yeah. like I'm an annoyer, I just say, well, I'm helping you retire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. And, as, as, you know, I'm sure that will go down well. Yeah. The human can go well, but. It's also like this, then you accepting, yeah, I am a net compared to an experienced yeah. person. That's why I'm a trainee. So sometimes when they're really under the pump or somebody's dying or something, you, it's more palatable to accept just to be a fly on the wall. Mm. So I think as a student, there can be two modes to then go down to practicals. When the SHIT is hitting the fan, you're the fly on the wall. Just mm -hmm. keep out of the way. So it's another judgment call. Yeah. Um, but when it isn't, that's when you say, oh, can you show me, you know, have you got time to show me? Mm. It's a fabulous way of phrasing it. Have you got time to show me? No, they're dying. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. To fly mm. on, the, on the wall mode. Um, because the king is not you or the doctor, it's the patient. Um, mm. Whereas if it's like, oh, no, this is a routine colonoscopy, you can put the drip, drip in. And da, 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 da. Mm. Um, or you might be strategic. You might pick the non-pressured situations to learn in. So instead of saying like the cat one in ED, you might say, show me the cat three. Mm. It is a little bit more time able. Um, but I think when the, when the whole unit's under the pump, like it is now fly on the wall mode, mm. um, and then you don't expect to ask too much or expect too much. And then equally, if somebody's like grossly appropriate in an unsafe workplace type mode, that's more of a dilemma because you don't want to unnecessarily tattletale on people, but there should be sort of some, well-being person mm. through HR if there's a pattern of, of behaviour and it's part of their duty to monitor. Mm. And then your career will be protected. So if there is some monstrous person and you dob, you will be protected. Mm. Um, in some ways, actually, career path might be easier, but I don't encourage <laughs> because mm. you, you, there'll be a ring of protection around you for anybody saying it's not suitable for progression. Mm. Um, so you shouldn't be scared of, of that either. So it is difficult, but I think you have to accept you are a nuisance till you're an expert, but that's why you're a trainee. Mm. And us experts need to retire. That's why we put up. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I guess for students, it's just sort of like a long time to always feel like a nuisance. You're there every day, um, there for many hours a day often. Um, and I, I personally, I miss the days of when I was working full time and I felt like a useful employee. Um, and it does sort of take, give your self-esteem a little bit of a hit. I think when you're, con- when you're chronically in a inept learner mode, um, trying to not get in the way mode, um, personally, I found just making sure I continue to work in my employment because that makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel like I'm a competent person. I'm not in a learning space in that environment um, and doing other things that make me feel good about myself or build my self-esteem, um, like achieving other goals, like fitness goals, for example. Do you have any other comments or thoughts on on how to bolster your self-esteem when you are in that chronic learner um, yeah, junior so I mean- headspace? You know, and thinking about it, I mean, a lot of my anti-burnout is doing my job well. Mm. And when you can do it well, it's very fulfilling. Um, but it didn't start that way. And then when you're a supernumerary learner, it is frustrating. Um, so it's difficult. Mm. It is difficult being a student. Um, but there's no way around it as well. So some of it's grief acceptance. Mm. So normally there's two main sort of modes of processing things of positive thinking. So using positive thinking at a funeral, you'd say, smile, everybody, we're alive. <laughs> it, it doesn't apply. In a, in a funeral, you need grief acceptance. So grief acceptance is processing, um, you know, something bad that's not going to go away. And so your the fulfilment of being adept at your career uh, is there as a student. Um, so it's more, it's harder. It's much harder being a student that way. Because you don't get that. Well, the upside, though, is there's no expectancy of you. Mm. So, so the flip side of competence is pressure. Um, like you're the go-to person, and you need to deliver. So it's a different type of, pr- of pressure, which is when you're in early specialised mode when you finish all your letters, and exams the, uh, to get it. So pressure doesn't go away; it just changes shape. Mm. And then kind of where I am now is good. It's good. But I'm sort of, you, you know, probably peaking. Um, and, and, and it's good when you get there, but it is a, a big hill to climb up. And as you're climbing up, it's difficult. And mm. this is part and parcel of the career in medicine, which is a choice. Mm. See, sometimes you make a choice and you, and you only become aware of the implications later. Yeah. Um, and so this is also a thing of like, okay, so... So some people may actually say, look, it's, it's not for me, mm. or they might pivot down a pathway which is all. Um, and that's okay. It's better to do that than be a trainer or glider. Mm. I definitely think medicine is one of those careers you don't really know what you're getting into until you're in it. Um, you have a vague sense, but, yeah, it's definitely you don't, you don't really get much exposure for the career. You can't do a careers day in medicine really. Yeah. I mean, the good mm. thing is there's many different endpoints. Mm. Um, there's a real diversity um, of endpoints, different um, areas you can work in. Yeah. So that's the upside. But when you're, you know, banking your initial credentials, you don't have a lot of, of choice. Mm. Um, and so, so there, so there, there is uh, pressure. So it, 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 there's inherently challenges and stress in a career in medicine. And mm. yeah. So your grief accept that, and okay. then your damage control. So grief acceptance. I tell people it's like the difference between the wheelchair alcoholic and the wheelchair basketballer. Mm. Wheelchair basketballers, grief accepted, they're in a wheelchair. They don't want to be in a wheelchair, but they're making the most of it. Mm -hmm. The wheelchair alcoholic's angry and not ready to embrace it. Mm. 
Mm. And and so, you know, realising that, yep, there's fundamental hardships in the career path you're in. Um, it looked more pleasant from the outside than the inside, like so many things in life. Mm. Um, but then grief accepted and, and damage control and push, push mm. through. And that may be if you're hating it, just get to a, a milestone and then and then take a different path or pick mm. a different path. Don't, don't, you don't have to follow the, the, you know, workaholic hospital doctor path, which are your main mentors when you're a trainee. Mm. Yeah, that's great advice. I like that analogy. That's helpful. Um, so you spoke a little bit about, uh, say, if there's an unsafe work environment, you can go to HR. Um, similarly, if someone is struggling with their mental health, what in they're either a junior medico or a medical student, what is your recommendation or what are your uh, what's your advice for what they should do for seeking help? Yeah, go and see a GP. Mm. <laughs> so just like go, everyone else, yeah, yep. Yeah, so I have some like radically, radically simple ones. Yeah. It's like like so it's really GPs are good. Yeah. <laughs> so, GPs are great. You've got, yeah. you've got your own thing yeah. that's separate to the organization. Yeah. Um, and they will protect you as well, yeah. like if you have a relationship. So even before you're in crisis, it's good to just, you know, think who would you go as your GP, somebody where there's trust mm. um, and how they sort of sort of handle things. Mm. So I think that is actually the best thing. The staff clinic issue is it's all within the organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an, another option. But I think your own GP gives that autonomy. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can also, if you want to go do therapy, you can go, Pick your own psychologist. Yeah, yeah. So, and, so the, yeah. The, the challenge with high-functioning people is if you're getting therapy, you need a therapist with high EQ and IQ. Mm. If you if you feel that you can run rings around your therapist, you can't fully hand over. Mm-hmm. So it's like some of my practices just, like if I have a breakdown, I'll just get the shock treatment. I don't know who I'd go to. <laughs> but, <PCT>. <laughs> but, you know, like you, you need somebody where you know that you, that, you, that you can't run rings around them. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's much harder to find that sense of confidence and containment when you've got high IQ, EQ. Mm. So maybe it's a, it's good to ask your GP if they know any psychologists that are that are yeah, helpful yeah. for other doctors that have, see other yeah. doctors. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a criticism; it's just it's just the reality. You need to feel that they they can encompass you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's one of the disadvantages of having an outlier IQ, EQ is mainstream things are less of an ideal fit. Mm. Um, so, like, a lot of what I do is I'll just see high EQIQ professional people and they feel I can keep up with them mm-hmm. and then they hand over X, Y, Z to help them process it. And then, I mean, therapy, there's three modes, right? So support, which is being a good friend, but it's one-way traffic, so it's a job. Yeah. Here and now, coping strategies, which is the bulk of psychological counselling, sort of mindfulness, cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, a variety of others. And then insight-oriented psychotherapy, which is really relationship counselling between you and you. Mm-hmm. So about a third of people have a somewhat emotionally miserable childhood because they're emotionally mismatched with their parents and then they never feel adequate, so they're sort of self-rejecting. Mm-hmm. They're never good enough. High achievers can be as well. Like when I become the professor of medicine, then I'll be worthwhile or whatever. Mm. So um, they often lead that trickier um, self-relationship approach, which is the, the trickier psycho, you know, psychotherapy approaches. Mm. Would that be more guided towards insight, guide, insight-orientated therapy? Yeah, so if you don't like yourself and it's mm-hmm. constant hard work being you and you're living a lie and you're a bit mis- and your family of origin is not 
as wonderful emotionally as they could have been, mm. um, then to be satisfied with yourself in your life, to be at peace with yourself in your life, mm. which is attainable. Happiness is a myth, sorry to tell you, but, but being at peace with yourself in your life is, is attainable. Mm. Um, and so if, you, if you're constantly hard with being here, you never, you never felt good enough, it was an emotionally damaging childhood. Where, so essentially an adequate childhood is you're nurtured and rescued enough to you can self-nurture and self-rescue. Mm-hmm. If you're an empath, you need to have an empathic parent. If you're a miniature Donald Trump, you're pretty much emotionally bomb-proof. Um, but if you're an empath, so there's an empathy spectrum. Yeah. The unempathics are the members of the tribe that kill the next tribe to get their food and sleep well at night. Yeah. And the empaths are the nurturers of the next generation. Mm-hmm. So, again, that group survival idea of why, why some are some way and some are another way. Mm. Is, um, um, there. So if you're an empath, and there's some damage growing up and you never feel adequate, you're more at risk of burnout because it's hard work being here, which is another type of chronic stress, mm-hmm. and they're more likely to, to hit the wall at some point. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. So that tricky therapy is the sort of therapy which I do if somebody's at the end of the line of pills, potions, and yeah. brain stimulations and so on. Yeah, interesting. Um, I know that there are some... Locally, there's some concerns about reporting mental health issues as a health practitioner. I think that's changing a little bit. Um, some of the data I hear for, have here from Beyond Blue is in 2010 that showed that 34% of Australian medical students would not seek help for depression. Um, and they cited stigma in the profession, embarrassment, possible impact on their career development and concern about being allowed to continue to practice as a medical practitioner. Um, this was these rates were similar in the JAMA study in 2016. So it's it's getting better, but it's still a problem. Um, how true do you think some of these perceptions are specifically about their um, capacity to continue as a medical practitioner if they report their mental health issues? Yes, I mean there's been a recent change in legislation like mandatory reporting and so on. But I mean I've treated lots of medical practitioners and I always protect them and help them. And, and so the reality is if you're seeking help, you're demonstrating good judgment and good self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you want somebody who will fight for you. You need to trust the person. That's why it's good having yeah. a pre-existing relationship with your GP or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you were wanting to be strategic, um, just comforting yourself that it demonstrates good judgment to address issues mm-hmm. and self-reflecting that, if X, Y, Z impaired my practice, I would self-step down. Yeah. So, for example, if I'm an alcoholic and I turned up to work drunk, this is unacceptable. I'm actually going to take an urgent leave and document it all. So mm-hmm. then if it goes to the medical board, you've got a evidence trail of being incredibly professional with good judgment. Mm. Um, so you can flip it to, to a strength, not a weakness. It demonstrates um, self-awareness judgment the lack of self-awareness in doctors is what worries the medical board the most okay um so so you can flip it to your advantage mm-hmm. um, and, cons- and and you wouldn't allow yourself to be an impaired practitioner you it's itself dob in but i mean that would really mainly be substance abuse it'd be very rare that it had a psychotic or bipolar spectrum um sort of um, um pattern um in pregnancy there'd be mainly substance abuse mm-hmm. um, and it would be that antisocial narcissistic, that lack of remorse, lack of empathy doctor with a drug issue who doesn't really care the consequences to the patient. Okay. 
Yeah. Whereas if you're mindful of consequences to the patient, self-police and self-get help, mm. you actually will have a very strong career and the medical board will champion you. Yeah. Okay. Instead, of, the ones they attack are the ones who, who are uh, delinquent in their responsibilities with no remorse or anything. Yeah, that's good to know. Is, what Are mental health conditions specifically reportable to AFRA? Um, or is it only when there is a... It would be impaired practitioner. Yeah. So, so, like, if you had any health practitioner, say there was a paramedic who was an opioid addict and telling you they're stealing, you know, fentanyl from the mm-hmm. station or something, yeah, there is a requirement. But mm-hmm. then the way you know, but then equally you don't want to tip that person into suicidal behaviour. Mm-hmm. So you generally try and get them to dob themselves in. Okay. Um, and and I would tell them about it, well, at least it shows good judgment. Even if they're sort of narcissistic or uh, antisocial, or sort of, um, the, I don't want them to die. I don't judge them if they're Putin or Trump. I, I mean, I still don't want them to die. I might not mm-hmm. like how they operate. Mm-hmm. So putting it in a face-saving way that they end up with the high, on the higher ground works for the narcissist antisocial. Then the empath who's just lost perspective, yeah, they'll go, yeah, I, I couldn't live with myself if I let somebody down at work. And then because they're dobbing themselves in, they have a sense of agency instead of another injury, mm-hmm. and then it sets them up for rehabilitation and reintegrating downstream. So this, I'm giving actually some clinical nuance of that, and that's how I manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to trust the, the person who's managing is adept at navigating the system the system, if you don't manage the system, it's toxic and dangerous. You have to manage the system to get good outcomes. Mm. Um, and so, you, and so, you know, you'd want to have confidence that you've got maybe an, quite an experienced GP mm-hmm. um, and an experienced person who's just got a lot of flight models on, on how to how to get there. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's um. That's good to know. It sounds like substance abuse is probably the most um, that would be the typical, high risk. Yeah, yeah, that'd be the typical scenario. Yeah, um, where where there's a need to to, to protect and mm-hmm. and usually that people would be managed by their GPs initially, and then that might yeah. get a psychiatric you know assessment. Mm, okay, and it sounds like things like depression, anxiety. That's very, very unlikely for that to be a report. Very, like, un- very yeah, unlikely. To- or if you've got like a subtle bipolar two type thing, mm-hmm. it's not going to give you role impairment. And your help seeking demonstrates good judgment mm-hmm. uh, and self risk mitigation. So you're actually you can turn the medical board into your champion. Mm. Like it's radical thinking, but it's true. Yeah, interesting. I think students will find that really useful. I, I think there is an undertone of people being scared about coming forward or seeking help is that it's unclear to them what the ramifications will be on their career. Um, so it's very helpful. Um, so I wanted to end on a bit of a lighter note. So what would be your three key takeaways for medical students and junior doctors about how they can manage their health um, or optimise their mental health as they move through their careers? Yeah, so I think the first thing is your life is bigger than your career. Just mm-hmm. keep reminding yourself. And if, you, if you're if you really in a year that's intolerable, see if you can survive to the end of the year or the end of rotation and then redesign what you do. Mm-hmm. So number one is, is your life is bigger than your career. Number two, simple stuff is useful like sleep, don't drink too much, keep some social contacts outside of medicine. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that helps just ground you. Mm. Um, and then the, the third thing is um, build a relationship with a GP ahead of time um, so that if there's a drama later, you've got to go to person. And I think just those sort of three things will put you ahead of the curve in terms of managing yourself optimally to get muscle burn, not rip. Mm. Optimally, you know, develop your stamina as a doctor. Fantastic. Great advice. Thank you so much, AJ. This has been fantastic. I think um, students will get a lot out of this and um, hopefully they learn some new things. All right. Terrific. Well, just ping me an email if you need any follow-up and I'm happy for people to email me questions and stuff. That's all Fantastic. Good. I'll pop those, uh, I'll pop your email and um, your contact details in the show notes so um, people can find you there. Hello, fellow Medlins. So the crappy audio from recording on Zoom between placement and shoots may have given us away, but many of you may not actually know that we're only a small team of two. It's just myself and Sophia who self-fund and produce this podcast. Since it is just the two of us, we'd love to hear from you about anything med student life that you would like on the podcast. So please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook. You can find us under Growing Pains MD and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.